Jen, this was the funnest. <laughs> it was so fun. <laughs> Tell us all about it. Okay, but first of all, everyone, we're on hiatus. You know this by now. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe <laughs> we've talked about it. Maybe we have. Who knows? We're still recording things. It's exactly. Content is still being delivered to them. They just don't know that we did this a month ago. Well, it'll be clear we did this a month ago, but <laughs> but we're on a we're on a little break. If you follow uh, me, Sarah, on Instagram, you'll see pictures of blue cerulean blue sky and water. I hope I'm not there yet, but let's you know cross our fingers. Let's all cross our fingers. Um, I'm in Rhode Island for a little while at the beach where my sister lives, being safe and wearing a mask. I hope you are wherever you are being safe and wearing a mask. Jen, what are you doing? What Predict what you're doing. Um, I'm teaching some summer school classes, which is not like, I don't know why I do this to myself. But you know what? I just had the, Sarah, I just had an amazing idea. We should mm. make faded mates masks. <gasps> that would be so fun. Tell Kelly to get on it. I'm going to tell her. Kelly's spidey sense is tingling right now. She's like... I, I feel a disturbance. I bet there are people making custom-made masks based on oh, your art design. Of course, right? There are. In fact, I was just the other day looking on one of those, like, Vista print or four imprint. I don't know. We're not sponsored by anyone, so we have no we have no horse in this game. <laughs> um, but And they all have custom masks. We should just get some. That would be really fun. It is going to be, be fun. really fun. Let's do it. Okay. Um, okay, so, we're, so that's what we're working on right now. <laughs> We're taking a break. Jen had to give us a new job, and here I we are. I have a whole new plan. <laughs> I'm also going to read a lot of books, everybody. That's my plan for July. Okay, but what people are about to listen to is, like, the softest of our content. It's so nice. It was such a sweet, fun podcast to do. Yeah, it really was. Jen and I were invited by the Deerfield, Illinois Public Library to talk to them for their podcast about Faded Mates and romance novels and do some recommendations, and we talked about my writing. So my friend, Elisa, works at the Deerfield Public Library. And Hi, she, Elisa. Yay, she's the best. And she was kind of like, hey, would you guys be on our podcast? And Dylan is the podcast person there, and he's the one who interviewed us. And it was awesome, and it was so fun. And you know what will be, I think, interesting is, for our listeners, is like, we are the, we are the, People being interviewed as opposed to just talking about romance, right? So it's like a, it felt like a really different conversation and it was really awesome. So it was really fun. We had a good time. It's been on the Deerfield Public Library uh, feed for a while. So if you follow them and listen to their podcast, you will have listened to this episode. But we enjoyed it so much uh, that we thought that you all who don't follow the Deerfield Public Library podcast would maybe enjoy listening to it too. If you have time and inclination and you're anywhere near Deerfield and want to give a little shout out to Deerfield, we'll put links uh, in show notes so that just a quick link to Dylan and everybody there and Elisa. Um, And thank you all for having us. That was really fun. Yeah. If anybody's ever asked me for like recommendations for Kidlet, probably I went to Elisa (laughs) because she (laughs) is a rock star. She has sat on like big committees and um, also has a really cool blog that she does with other librarians called Reading While White. And the whole focus is like white librarians and teachers talking about like they're reviewing Kidlet and like how important it is to Mm. read um, with a really wide lens. And so it's a really another really great resource if you're a 
a person with children and you want to make sure that you are putting great books in their hands. So Nice. Oh, I, you know what else, Jen? I want to take one minute. Just I know that we're supposed to just be doing a quick topper and Eric's going to be like, what? is happening. <laughs> but we got asked this week, I think, a really important conver- a, an important request. Um, and I just want to, you made me think about it because Elisa and Kidlet. So we were asked by a reader to make a recommendation for a 15-year-old girl in her life, although I don't think it matters that she's a girl, um, who is curious about sex and thinking about having sex. And this um, listener wanted uh, some recommendations for books that she could hand to her 15-year-old friend and offer to offer her sort of some sex positivity, but also awareness of what she should be expecting from her first time. And maybe to give her a little bit of extra food to, you know, chew on before she makes her decision about when her first time happens. So Jen and I talked, and uh, we came up with a couple of of uh, recommendations that were approved, because I, I specifically said, is it okay if there's sex in them? And yes, th- yes, it was. So we suggested L. Kennedy's The Deal, Kristen Callahan's The Game Plan, which is the one with the virgin hero, and the reader came back to me and said, I think I'm going to give her Sophie Jordan's kissing lessons, too. And I can't believe that wasn't the first one out of my head. But it's not it's not an adult romance. It's a YA novel. But it also does that kind of um, work around just thinking about when's the right time for it to be the right time. And I feel like we maybe at some point next season should do a whole episode on this, like, you know, yeah. on this sort of sex positivity early reading romance. I, I'd never really thought too hard about it, but now I feel like it's an important one. But I wanted to talk about it here just because it's summer, and sometimes summer is just one of those times where young women and young men are thinking about the, the business. So if you've got one in your life, uh, Jen and I think that uh, those three are good, solid choices. Yeah, and you know what? Check show notes because I have another one in my brain that I can't come up with right now, but I will figure it out and put it there along with any other resources we might find in this conversation. Yeah, but now I'm putting that on our list for next season. We're going to do an episode on it. That's great. I love it. We'll talk more. All right, so here's Sarah and Jen and Dylan from the Deerfield Public Library. Your podcast, Fade and Mates, has been such a huge joy. It's so interesting, intellectually stimulating. I am a huge fan now. But I thought just to start, I wanted to acknowledge that we're recording this at a difficult time. The demonstrations um, protesting the murder of George Floyd are happening right now. And of course, we are all on some form of lockdown. And when I was thinking about that this morning, I thought, well, maybe I need to say, well, this is why romance is important because it's an escape for us. But then I thought, I don't think escape is quite the right word. You're always talking about real issues as they happen in romance. Yeah, we talk a lot. So I'm Jen. Um, We talk a lot actually about how romance is so 
like romance is a really fast genre and, and Sarah can talk a little bit more about this, right? So, and it's, there's such a well-established self-published world of romance that the ability for like romance authors to respond really quickly to events in society is I think really unparalleled. And it's not that it's like an escape. I think what it is is a guarantee, right? It's that you, we all deserve happiness and that we can all have that. And that's something that everybody should, should get. And I think that's, that's actually a pretty, pretty great message. I think it's, Yeah, it feels to me like the way, particularly recently in the last few years, um, you know, romance has always been, uh, it's always been kind of under, uh, it's always, uh, romance has always been sort of undervalued, I think. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with something being kind of purely for pleasure, but the reality is, is that for almost 50 years, romance has been doing some really interesting political work. And I mean that with a small P political, although certainly some of us are writing capital P political romances too. Um, it's been centering, you know, if you've ever, you you sound like you listen to Faded Mates. If you've ever listened to Faded Mates, you know, we talk all the time about um, how it's really centering the gaze and the pleasure and the happiness and the hope of communities that don't really ever get to be the centered gaze in, in media. Um, if you are not a cishet white man um, in the world, it's kind of rare for you to find mass media that is for you. for you. And romance is able to give you that. And so by virtue of even existing, sometimes I think of romance as being politic. But um, certainly these days when we're talking about, you know, people we adore and we talk about all the time on the podcast, like Adriana Herrera, who writes um, her American Love Story is about a Black Lives Matter activist and a DA and them having to sort of struggle with their realities and their ways of working either within or without the system or Kennedy Ryan, who's always writing, you know, really interesting, like thoughtful, um, you know, her last book, The Kingmaker Chronicles, is you know, the first book in that series is about um, indigenous women going missing. You know, these kind of books and authors who are taking really f- impressive, important stands and doing it through the lens of we all deserve happiness and partnership and pleasure and love and hope and all the things that come with it. And there's nothing fluffy about that. It's amazing. I am totally a romance newbie, so I'm going to admit that for all the listeners, um, that, you know, of course I have to know a handful so I can recommend to patrons at the library. And where I really started thinking about this was 10 years ago back in undergrad, I took a class with, um, I think you're familiar with Eric Selinger at DePaul. Sure. And I took a class on poetry with him, but that was one of the things he emphasized with modern poetry was how is this literature working to give us pleasure? And that question is so complicated and so interesting. And when you start to think about, he teaches romance too. So when you start to think about that with romance, it's not easy. And that's one of the things I love about your podcast and have loved about reading Sarah's books and other romance books the past few weeks is it's it's not it doesn't just happen naturally this is a really intentional creative 
endeavor. Well, and so is like relationship making. I mean, you know, yes, romance is, is, you know, sort of, you know, like, yes, it's a genre, but like, you know, a lot of us, a lot, all of our relationships with people in our lives are work. And I think one of the things that's great about romance is it shows that like hard work in a relationship can pay off. And I think that even if you are like happily married, I mean, I've been happily married for 20 years and still love romance because I feel like it makes all my relationships better, right? Because it's just about that, like really like being a good listener, respecting the other person, trying to like understand their point of view. It's empathy building. I mean, it's like when we talk about all the things you do by reading fiction, like romance is like supercharged, right? Yeah, it's so intentionally about character and in the internal um, that I think often people think, well, like, how could a, as a writer, a question that I get all the time is, you know, well, I don't understand, like, don't they all just end the same way? You know, as readers, as romance readers, we get it all the time. How can you read so many of them? They are all the same. And I mean, there's the one piece to the puzzle, which is at any time, you know, you know, a thousand people in your life who have fallen in love and not one of them has fallen in love the same way another person has. So there's that. But also I think, one of the confusions about romance or the, misun- the, the sort of misunderstood pieces of romance is that the, the books are about people. They're about identity. And they're really about identity in a way where, you know, we say we, when we read any piece of fiction, we want a character to evolve. We want, it, we want a character we can, we can relate to and a character who at, at the end of the story is different than they were at the start. I mean, if anything... That is what romance really is excels at is is creating characters who really have to wrestle with issues of identity in order to find the piece of themselves that is allowed to love or that is lovable. Yeah. Yeah, this is something um well, first of all, I'll say if anyone listening is still skeptical, I just you know, I keep thinking about all of the interviews I read with literary authors by the book series in the New York Times or other things where it's very common for a literary author to mention, oh, I have a crime novel on the side of my bed in addition to all the other stuff, or I have a sci-fi novel, and that gets kind of immediate respect, but you don't hear Salman Rushdie saying, oh, and I you know, have the latest Sarah McLean book, but I think he should. Um, we all think he should. <laughs> <laughs> my gosh, imagine that cover quote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting um, it on my vision board. <laughs> well, no, but I mean it's because now. of patriarchy, right? I mean, yeah. sure, media that is for women generally, um, or in our case, media that is that centers women or other marginalized people doesn't get the same respect that you know, yeah, other media does. So smash the patriarchy, read a romance. Yeah. <laughs> our brand now we're done podcast over (laughs) i know i didn't want you to have to you know defend romance a bunch but since i am a newbie i i feel like i want to invite in other newbies (laughs) one of my you know one of my favorite things about romance though is i would say the barriers to entry for romance are basically zero if you find a romance reader and you with like an open heart say i'm kind of interested in reading a romance we are like like, you know, that scene in Beauty and the Beast where it's like, be our guest and like roll off the carpet, <laughs> right? Because I think that that's part of, you know, I mean, it, 
it's there's we're just so thrilled to like have you get on board with us that yeah um I think that you know no one should if you're at all interested like and you get on Twitter and you say to one of us like hey I'm new what should I read it's you're gonna be actually like adrift in a sea of recommendations in about 23 <laughs> seconds Okay, because this is my experience with your podcast. So just the past couple weeks, I've been reading Alyssa Cole. Um, Of course, I've read several of Sarah's books. Um, Jennifer Cruzy. The writing is so good. I'm like, that is... (laughs) And then your recent podcast episode, Nikki Sloan. (laughs) Wow. Jumped right into the pool. Right into the deep end. I really did. (laughs) But I mean, that's, I think that's what Jen's getting at is this, you know, because we do have a low barrier to entry because any, literally, if you tell me your favorite book outside of romance in any genre, I can help you find romance that you'll love because, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot inside the genre is, you know, if you love a thriller and you, we've got romantic suspense everywhere and it's a thriller, but with kissing, you know, it's sci-fi, but with kissing, it's historical novels, but with kissing. And what's the best to love about this? This is like the greatest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I did want to just read a quote from Sarah's uh, first romance book. I believe it's your first nine rules to break when romancing a rake. I love this book. This might be an answer that that Jen can give you better than me because <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> I reread it on the regular, so I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, let me just read this paragraph because it's it's exactly I think what we're talking about. This is about the main character Callie. She chuckled. If only others knew that Lady Calpurnia Hartwell, proper, well-behaved spinster, entertained deep-seated and certainly unladylike thoughts about fictional heroes, she sighed again with self-deprecation. She was well aware of how silly she was, dreaming of the heroes in her books. It was a terrible habit, and one she had harbored for far too long. It had begun when she first read Romeo and Juliet at age 12 and followed her through heroes great and small, from Beowulf and Hamlet and Tristan to the dark brooding heroes of gothic novels. It didn't matter the quality of the writing, Callie's fantasies about her fictional heroes were entirely democratic. I wanted to bring that up because I it's an example of how smart and canny Sarah's writing is, but there is something democratic about this ethos, right? I mean, I think so. I think romance, you know, Jen talks all the time as a critic of, you know, she has three questions. Jen, tell everybody about your three questions okay. and then we'll come back to it. Well, and I, I okay, I'm going to, uh, a couple years ago, I had Michael Phillips, who is the Tribune film critic as one of my, a parent at like my school. And he came and talked to the kids and he, and it like changed my life. I feel like I should like write him a letter and be like, Hey, remember that like 20 minutes you spent in front of the seventh graders. Um, and what he said was like, when he's doing criticism, like, right. He has these three questions that he's always trying to address. Right. Which is like, what is the work trying to do? Like, right. What is it trying to achieve? Like, does it achieve it? And then the last one is, and was it worth achieving? Right. And that is really foundational to the way I think about books because you can't judge you know, you can't judge a romance based on what a thriller is trying to do unless it's romantic suspense, right? You can't judge a romance based on what, you know, I don't know, um, 
Franzen is trying to do. Like they're try- like they're trying to do different things, and every kind of thing you come across deserves to be like sort of judged on its own merits, right? And so um, I think that's just really important to me. I'm curious as to see why Sarah wanted me to talk about that now. <laughs> yeah, I think that it. I think it's because I'm always first of all when you hear that in general, as somebody who loves books, it, it really sort of transforms the way you think about a book, period. But when you hear it as somebody who writes books, it really does transform the way you think about writing books. And I think that the thing about romance, and we've talked about it already, is this, because there is such a broad spectrum of romance, because there is everything from, you know, Jenny Cruzy and um, Loretta Chase, who are writing kind of books that I would say transcend the genre in a way I don't I don't think romance needs to transcend the genre but if somebody were were to say tell me that they loved historical novels but they didn't really they were skeptical about romance I would hand them Loretta Chase's Lord of Scoundrels and I would say you are going to love this book like the writing is superior everything about this is is fantastic. Um, but that's a different experience than, you know, we did a podcast, we did an episode of the podcast on, you know, category romances, which are short Harlequins. Those aren't designed to be big, you know, dense books. They're designed to be a straight shot of conflict and a really delicious 250 page ride. You know, we've talked about quick and dirty romances, erotic romances. Those are, those have different goals. They're, they're, the intent of those books, what they are trying to achieve is a different kind of thing than what Loretta or Jenny or, you know, others are trying to achieve. And so I think when you come to romance, part of the joy of it and part of, you know, in that quote, of course you read that to me and I had, you know, 15 edits. And it's interesting because I wrote (laughs) that book 11 years ago and I probably would not have written that, that exact paragraph the same way anymore. Um, because I've done differently. Well, I probably wouldn't have said anything about the quality of writing because I don't think it's, (laughs) I mean, like there are just sort of things that I no longer would necessarily agree with. I don't necessarily think it's silly to, you know, dream about fictional heroes. There's, whatever, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Everyone, you know, um, this is my problem. This is why I don't, I have not read that book in 11 years because I'm always editing. But um, I think that the value of that sentiment is um, it's okay for women to have fantasy and for, for us to talk about these books as places where people can feel safe with their fantasies. Um, And sometimes that's all the book needs to do. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, safe. yes, and it's amazing because I, I think that it really works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm you glad. Know, how, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many times have you had somebody tell you, oh, this book will change your life or something? And it, um, you know, I, I, I like books that make me depressed too, but. <laughs> yeah, I also think there's, you know, when I come at romance, I come at it from a really interesting, I mean, I think when I sit with other writers, I live in New York City, I you know, I'm around a lot of like snooty literary people. <laughs> and, and, you know, you hear them sort of say like, oh, I'm tackling this heavy tome of a book and I'm going to read War and Peace this summer and it's going to take me, you know, two months to get through it. And I sort of say, well, if it takes you longer than six hours to read one of my books, I've done something wrong, right? Like there's a very different style to writing genre than there is to writing literary 
um, you know, and even even genre versus, you know, commercial fiction. And so I think when we have these conversations about what is the book intentional, what is the goal of the book? The goal of my book is to keep you up until three o'clock in the morning and to like give you pleasure and give you joy and have you close the book and think that was really fun. Yeah. Because reading should be fun. Reading should be fun. I want to talk more about that. (laughs) Okay. Well, I want to talk about, so Jen, I think one thing that you've um, mentioned several times on the podcast is how, and I think you even talked about at the beginning here, is how quickly romance might age that within like 10 or 15 years, and we were just reading a (laughs) 10-year-old book by Sarah, um, that so many things in the culture change, and, and this is even with novels that are set historically, of course. Because romance is in historical fiction, right? Like an an old, an older, like romance that's historical fiction is going to feel dated because a historical fiction is, if historical romance is still about now. Well, I think one of the things I love about the podcast is that the way you talk about books that you've loved in the past it's actually smarter and more sophisticated, I think, than a lot of the ways some literary people talk about their problematic faves. It's a lot less defensive. You're like, yeah, this book really gave me a lot of pleasure and I loved it, but maybe now I'm looking at it and the gender politics are a little weird. Okay, we're just talking about it and putting it out there. We don't have to hide that to make it this perfect thing. I think this is actually something Sarah and I talk about a lot because because romance always feels like it sort of gets the least amount of respect from other literature, that we always kind of feel like we're searching for purity, right? Like we want to prove to everybody that like we've changed and we've evolved and, you know, like, okay, that's fine. We can, and I just think none of us want to throw the baby, Sarah and I do not want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We want to say like, Romance has changed and is changing, but you can still learn a lot about who we were, not only as like a genre, but as a, as people, as a country. As a culture. As a culture, I mean, yeah. I mean, this is the thing, romance, right? We, we iterate the world that we are in really fast. I mean, I'm a slow writer and I write a book every 11 months, right? And... Uh, there are those of us in the genre who are writing four or five, six books a year, um, which wild. <laughs> so when we talk about things like, uh, you know, there has been a presidential election or there we're in the midst of a pandemic or, you know, there are protests, all the things that sort of come from the world, they embed themselves in our books much more quickly than they do in other genres. Um and that what and they also embed themselves in our in our books through the lens of often the people who are most impacted by mm-hmm. those things right so when women put pen to paper after um the you know Kavanaugh hearings we're writing maybe we're not writing overtly about the Kavanaugh hearings but we are writing with that in our mind and so romance books that come out now are coming are you know we're written you know six months after the Kavanaugh hearings like deep in in me too with 
all of the stuff that comes with that. And that's true historically of romance. I mean, we have always, and part of why I think Jen and I don't want to throw out those old books and why we do want to continue to talk about why they worked at the time or why they continue to work is because those books were doing that kind of political work um, and social work then. Um, So, you know, we talk about the genre being birthed alongside second wave feminism. So you can see it in the bones of it. You talk about Mm -hmm. what happened after 9-11 and the rise of paranormal romance. You can see national trauma, fear, embedding themselves in these kind of impenetrable, like unbeatable heroes who were literally unable to die and also able to literally save the world. I mean, these kinds of things are happening all the time in romance. So when we say like, oh, those early books had rape on the page, it's very easy for us to say, well, we must throw them all out and never talk about them. But the reality is, is that rape is exists for women. In the 70s, it wasn't possible for a married woman to be raped by her husband legally. And so when it existed on the page of the romance novel, it was a conversation that was happening privately in a really subversive way for women and women writers. So I think there's just so much to unpack about those early books, which is why Jen and I do the podcast, because we don't want to... There's also an alarming dearth of academic information about romance yeah and we're moving so fast so fast yeah I have like I you know I don't have a PhD but like if I won the lottery I would I have like seven different PhD topics I'm pretty sure I could do just within the pages of a romance novel and one the one I like always I'm like I'm always telling Sarah I really want to talk about Vietnam era heroes and sort of how like we how like romance unpacked like men coming home from war yeah but I also think that you could like the way that language around gender is changing is something that romance is really showing and it's showing really fast Mm -hmm. and I think that you know I just think it's fascinating and so it's not just kind of who we are now it's it's also this a really amazing i don't know like superstructure of who we've been yeah uh-huh. and there's a constant question too i mean you've heard us ask it on the podcast recently about you know who we will become like yeah. what we're one of the few genres where we can say like covid's on the page already in romance so how do we how will it ref, be reflected in the text as we move forward I want to switch gears a little bit here to just, Sarah, ask you about your research process, because I know that you actually sometimes travel to London to do research, and in Wicked and the Wallflower, you had all this research on the ice trade. That was such a different, interesting thing. Um, And then your new book that is coming out in that Bare Knuckle Bastards series is it Daring in the Duke? Is that what it's called? Uh, this is about a, what do you, a women's pleasure house? Is that how you describe it? Yeah. I was mean, that a real thing? Sure. Um, actually, yes. There. So the best thing about writing historical fiction in general is that there's, I have in 11 years never come up with an idea that I couldn't find the seeds of in history. Sometimes I have to a little bit fudge the dates. Like, oh, that <laughs> happened 10 years later than I'm writing about it. Um, but so. whatever, I'll put it, that's what author's notes are for. And that's why I don't write historical novels. Um, 
but my research process, I mean, I, my mom's English. I, I, um, have spent a lot of time. I, I've spent many, 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 I've, I've been to England many, many times as a child. And that's really where I fell in love with romance novels honestly. Um, and now, so, you know, the research process is very much, well, I must go back <laughs> every, every year. I, I mean, I must, how could I not do the research without going? It's a good excuse to get on a plane. Um, and so my research process is usually, um, I think about the idea for the book and then I make sure that it can, it could have happened. And then I go to London and I find all the places and things that, um, make it so. So um, in Wicked in the Wallflower, there are a few things. Um, that hero was in the Foundling Hospital, um, which, or was a, was an orphan. And so I did a lot of research on, on orphanages um, and the Foundling Hospital there. Um, that whole, this whole series is set in Covent Garden, which is, was not nearly as posh then as it is now. In fact, it was the opposite of posh. Um, and there's tons of, there is so much great um, primary source material at the Museum of London. I mean, it, it just like if you were writing anywhere, you would go there and and sort of do as much primary source work as you can. Um, <clears throat> but yes, there's there anything that men had, women had too. They just had it in secret. Uh, a lot like now, <laughs> still. <laughs> um, and I think that is the joy. So when I knew, I mean, when I put this whole series together, I knew that Grace, the heroine of this book, would be, um, for those of you listening who have, who have watched that great feminist text, Magic Mike Double XL, you know. Bless. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrific. It is a, the feminist text of our day. <laughs> um, and Jada Pinkett Smith owns a kind of like ladies club. And I thought, well, that sounds great. Does that exist? And in, in fact, it does. It did. Um, and also in this new book, I mean, this, this new book was really interesting because I've moved forward. Time has marched during all of my books. And this year, I sort of realized when I was starting to plot this book that Victoria would have just become queen. And that is going to change everything for the next series and for the books in the future if I don't go back to the Regency. If time continues to march, you know, the Victorian age has come. And um, a lot, women were afforded a lot of freedoms in the Regency that. Um, we don't often think about because we sort of think of them as being very buttoned up and and Austin-esque. Um, and those freedoms start to be really stripped from women at all levels of society once Victoria's queen, which is sort of a weird... The irony. Ironic thing that happens. So that playing with those questions, playing with the... And, and everything old is new again. I mean, it feels like our freedoms are all on a nice point right now. Um, and so it's really... My research is very much about paying attention to what's going on today and then realizing that um, we haven't come maybe as far as we would like to think. Well, Jen, I wanted to ask you, because you talk in your podcast a lot about your teaching as well, what has your study of romance given to you, illuminated about teaching? Mm, that's a great question. Um I would say I would say a couple different things. So one is, I think one of the so I teach middle school, and one of the things that happens is kids when kids read picture books, 
it's always about like pleasure. It's reading is always for fun. And there's something that unfortunately I think happens as kids become more proficient readers and it happens in middle school. And that is that a lot of parents start to sort of think that it now should become like serious business. And they really push kids. It's sort of out of middle grade and out of YA. And it's sort of like, well, now you should be reading like serious things. And in my experience as a teacher, what that does instead is push kids into not reading anymore at all. And it's really hard to to look a parent in the eye and say, just like, let them read what they love. Like, just let mm-hmm. them read what they love. It doesn't matter. And you know what? If they re- love Harry Potter, I mean, I had a girl many years ago who just like wouldn't stop reading Harry Potter. Like, that's all she wanted to read. And her parents were really worried about it. And I was like, just don't. Like, just let her read. Because if you police kids reading and say, no, I don't want you reading that stuff anymore. That's kid stuff. Then what I think parents inadvertently do is turn their kids off of reading entirely. And you know what? There's so much competition for our free time that it's really hard to get back. Once a kid stops reading, they have stopped reading. And so one of the things I think it's really allowed me to do is just like full-throated embrace of like, just let kids read what they want. Reading is for pleasure and it's for fun. And if they are going to read serious stuff one day, they'll get there on their own. Nobody has to like force them into that. And I, so that's like one thing. And I talk to the kids, the kids know, I, the kids do not know about the podcast. Cause I think that would be horrifying. Um, they, <laughs> the Nikki Sloan in, episode would just, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm hyperventilating over here. Um, right. But they do know, they do know that I review romance for Kirkus. Like that's, they're interested in that. That's kind of like interesting to them. Um, so part of it too, is like really modeling, entirely and without any regrets that like reading is fun and they should read for fun and whatever that is for you is whatever that is. And that, you know, uh, romance readers also read everything. And so they see that's, that's just a, like a, a part of my reading diet and it can be part of theirs too. So that I would say is like one thing, but the other thing I would say is um, I, when I started reviewing kind of in earnest a couple of years ago, it made me a better teacher because I had been sort of out of the practice of writing, of, of writing about books, right? You do it in college, you know, we're all English majors, who cares? (laughs) And then you, you get out of the practice yourself. And I remember going through a phase where I was kind of like, I'm a bad writer now. I, what am I, I'm not good at this anymore. And so re-engaging with criticism has, I think just made me a better reader and writer myself and then when I look kids in the eye and say just write about what you love about a book or write about what moved you or write about what was important to you I can really mean that in a different way that's so amazing is that's exactly what the best kind of criticism does in any genre this is not just romances about pleasure so the criticism should be about pleasure the best kind of literary criticism and the best, you know, serious book reading is fun. It has that intensity um, that you're talking about. I think that grownups really blow it 
you know, not just, <laughs> not, and it's not just teachers and school that does it. It's the whole, the, the message that we get from every corner of literary criticism and literary, um, you know, uh, the publishing industry even tells us that we should be ashamed of enjoying books, right? We talk about them as guilty pleasures, yeah. And it's such a nonsense way of talking about the act of reading, which is really, it's a, it's such a joy and it, it gives people such joy and, it, and it's such a form of self-care and of honoring your own pleasure, but also your own, you know, identity. We've talked, as we talked about before, and, you know, maybe romance isn't your thing. Maybe it is sci-fi or thrillers or mysteries or, you know, Tolstoy, but we should know the idea that we would shame somebody for reading a book that love, gave yeah. them joy is really weird. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And I think it's just hard. Yeah. You guys, I want to say it's, it's weird when it's adults and, but like watching kids. Yeah. It's it's, it's heartbreaking. Like just, if you are a parent just, and your kid loves reading, just let them read what they want. Like, please. That's like, if, Yeah. I would just say that. I would also say one more thing, which is teaching middle school has made me an awesome critic because I read so much more carefully, I think, because of, like, the way I have to talk to kids. When you teach something, you just learn it in a different way. And I think when I think about structurally how a book gets made and put together, because I have to explain it to 13-year-olds, it has really made me a better reader. I interviewed Sonali Dev um, a couple of years ago. Oh, she's terrific. Yeah, she's And great. one of the things she said is that, you know, in a lot of literary fiction, we have very depressing ends <laughs> to our stories, but that there's this whole avenue of life that is real and is true of people do fall in love and get married. And these are really central things to a lot of our lives that you have this whole way of exploring deeply in these books. Okay, I want to get into recommendations to wrap up here. So these are from a few staff members who are big fans of the podcast. Um, Melissa is wondering if there are any male-male historical romances written by own voices. It's an interesting thing. There's so many written by women. That's true. Um, there's E.E. E. Ottoman, who yeah. uh, is who writes about, are they Georgian? No, they're Edwardian. Uh, they're Edwardian historicals. Um, Jen and I both really love A Doctor's Discretion. Um, uh, e. e is a trans man who writes trans characters. Um, and and he's great. I mean, the, those yes, books agreed. are, they're really the, the um, they're really steeped in the, in the history and, the place of that they they have such a really like strong sense of place and then on top of it they're super sexy so um e. yeah e. i would say ee e. adamant i don't know of another man who writes historical romance i can't even name a man who writes historical romance that's not, not queer e. Yeah, he might be the only one I can think of, period. Um, you know what? There's an old, this is real old school. I mean, deep cut. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the 
first, I believe it is the first um, historical uh, gothic male male. And it's oh, yeah. Got, and it's really, it's sort of a stunning cover. You should all go look it up, even if this isn't of interest to you. Um, but it's this great old, like, gothic pulp fiction-y not, um, cover of, like, you know, House on the Hill and Two Men. Um, it's just magnificent. And the name of that, the name of the novel is Gaywick, and it's by Vincent Verga. And it was published in maybe 1980 at Avon. Um, so it's a real deep cut. Uh, but there's another one for you. And I mean, no, this is one of the biggest problems is, um, you know, finding own voices mm-hmm. in, in romance is still too difficult. Vincent Verga is the partner of one of my favorite writers, James McCourt. Oh, He's kind of a New York school uh, writer. Yeah. Cool. See, you learn something every time you do a podcast. <laughs> uh, okay. Trisha wants to know, um, since Sarah, your next series that's been announced, Hell's Bells, is about a Victorian girl gang. Yeah. Um, it doesn't come out till next year. So she said, in the meantime, if there are any other romance books with fierce women and or girl gangs, a burn it all down vibe is appreciated. Ah, <laughs> uh, burn it all down vibe. I feel like. Does it have to be historical? No. Oh, that's easier then. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was like, wait, okay. I'm like, let us... I mean, you know what's so funny is I'm like, I have a million books in my head and I'm just like sorting which one I want to talk about. Um, Burn it all down by... Well, let me talk about a historical while Sarah thinks too. Yeah, let me think. One of my, one of my favorite series that is a historical that has like that vibe is um, Joanna Shoup's Uptown Girls. <gasps> yes, Right? <laughs> like, let me tell you. Um, the Prince of Broadway in particular is honestly, I think, one of a, a really great romance. And it's it's uh, the second book. The third book in that series is called The Devil of Downtown. And it comes out also at the end of June. And these are about, this is uh, Gilded Age New York, so 1890s. And in this um, series... The first, uh, the, the, there are three sisters who are all like, you know, really money, but none of them really want to have that sort of society life. And in particular, Florence, who is the middle sister in the Prince of Broadway, wants to own and run her own casino. And in the third book, Justine actually hooks up with a guy who is also kind of like, um, like a criminal mastermind. And it's, again, she was interested in running down men who have abandoned their families and insisting that they pay like child support. And there's like no structure for that at all. And it's this, honestly, this amazing story about her sort of like really being outraged that um, the police and the justice system does not care about these women. So I would say in historicals that has that vibe for sure. You know, the other person who you have to you have to name in this is Beverly Jenkins. Yes. I was like, I couldn't um, come up with the because, right book, I mean, though. I was certainly like, all, I mean, Tempest maybe is a good choice. Um, what's the one where she she buys her own oven, Jen? That's Tempest. <laughs> yeah, Tempest. That whole series is, the yeah, it's great. That series is, I think it's just called the Old West series, but it's fabulous. I mean, Indigo, you. I mean, like, 
if you haven't read Indigo by Beverly Jenkins, go right there because Indigo, the whole premise of Indigo is um, the main character, Hester, is a conductor on the Underground Underground Railroad in Michigan and the hero is wounded bringing a family north and it's just, oh, talk about it, burn it down. Burn it all down vibe. Um, And then also on the reason why I thought of Bev is because I was thinking about um, Alyssa Cole's suffragette uh, black. So back in in, in 19, back in uh, 2016, Alyssa Cole and Piper Hewley and um, a couple of other authors put together, they did a, um, a, a, an anthology about black suffragettes. And every one of those, if you Google Alyssa Cole Black Suffragette uh, Anthology, you'll come up with it. Daughters um, of a Nation? Is that Daughters, what it's called? I think that's the first. Oh, yeah. Daughters of a Nation. That's right. And so it's no longer available as an anthology, but you can get each of the stories separately. And Alyssa's is called Let Us Dream, and it's about um, a Black cabaret owner during the Harlem Renaissance and an Indian, the Indian chef who works for her. And at the same time, there's suffrage in the background. Um, You know, Alyssa's books are always, like, if you haven't read Alyssa's Contemporaries, that sort of sisterhood and burn it down vibe is there, Mm -hmm. um, too. So those are some good places to start. But I worry because I feel like maybe she's read all of those. I think she may have um, read Beverly Jenkins. But there's I also, yet, so. I mean, you <laughs> cannot go wrong with Adriana Herrera's. There, she doesn't write, the first three books are male, male. Yeah, male the third right. one, American Sweethearts. Um, and then she's got a new one coming out this month, next month. I don't um, know. With heroin. Time has no meaning. So, uh, and that <laughs> will have a heroin. I haven't read it yet, but I'm knowing Adriana. She, she'll take care of you. Oh, uh, and Cressley. Yeah, what's wrong with us? <laughs> what's wrong with us? Sorry, the one more. Gang. <laughs> if you have, well, if you've read the, if you listen to the podcast, you've probably heard of a heard of Cressley Cole. <laughs> but- the Faded Mates podcast began with 18 episodes of deep dive of a deep dive read of Cressley Cole's Immortals After Dark series, which um, is paranormal, but also includes like these Valkyries killer and Valkyries and witches who are, I mean, talk about a girl gang, the girl gang oh, of girl God. gangs. Yes. Um, so if you have not read Immortals After Dark, now is the time. Um, because I can't believe we didn't start with that. Sometimes I forget our own our own roots, Sarah. My gosh. Well, you know what it is, is I just think everyone in the whole world has read them now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm totally embarrassed, but I'm going to ask for my own recommendation. I would like a male-male-female triple in historical or contemporary, but with a great setting. I love good descriptions. Historical. Kate it doesn't Pierce. have to be historical. Yeah, no, Kate Pierce. it can be okay. historical. We got you. Like, <laughs> no please. worries, friend. <laughs> Wait, Kate Pierce. Hang on. Let me pull it up. Uh, Kate Pierce has done a bunch of menage romances uh, that are historical. The one I'm thinking of, I think it might be called Mastering a Sinner, but let me check. Um, Jen, you go if you okay. have anything while I'm... Um, what I really like a, a 
author named uh, Elia Winters, and she mm. has a, a couple of books that are set in a small town in Massachusetts. And I think one of the ways that really goes against type is that we assume that these are like, uh, you know, only in big cities could people possibly have this particular, you know, like sort of relationship. And I think that I really like this angle, like sort of the small town, the small town romance that ends up being between three people. And the first one, the one I like um they're they're all pretty different and this is like her newest series um but they're all set in the same small town and the one i guess i would recommend is called three-way split and what happens is it's like the two men are roommates but also lovers but they can never really admit their feelings for each other and then they meet her and she actually is um like a small town business owner and she owns a sex toy shop and she, they meet her and like somehow her arrival means that these two men can be more open about their feelings for each other. And I think it's really terrific. And I think it's a great example of sort of like, you know, it's not real. It's not, you know, like sort of like an island or something beautiful like you know but kind of like small town and and like they have to put together a whole um you know it's like working with the local business chamber with like you know like fall festival night and I just feel <laughs> and I and I loved it I thought it was fantastic so yeah that sounds amazing that's <laughs> great and hot real hot um the one I was thinking of is called Simply Sinful that's Kate Pierce she wrote a whole series um set in like a pleasure house and this is a wife who married so she married her husband and they have like a kind of sexless marriage um because he has been through it um and they it she brings in a sort of third a man to help help her sort of open up their sexual experiences and it's real hot and and very historical and I actually just tore through a bunch of old Kate Pierce's recently Jen knows this because I was looking for just that the sort a sort of really like different but very erotic romance um in historical um and also if we're talking about male male um, female, then we have to talk about Maynage County, Kansas, too, yeah, which is um, Sierra Simone. <laughs> not a real place. Sadly, not a real place. <laughs> Only to us. <laughs> Sierra Sir- Simone writes um, almost exclusively, she says all, almost all of her books are set in uh, Kansas City. And um, she said, uh, this is a, another sort of small town. It's, it's um, you know, stranger comes to town. This a, a, a social media expert comes out to a farm outside, in a, at, a, at a farm outside of Kansas City. And there she discovers um, two strapping farmers, who, one of whom is a soldier returned from war and one of whom is like a really just like delicious farm boy, like corn fed farm boy. <laughs> and they um, all fall in love. And it's re- Sierra writes a very intense emotional um, romance that, you know, you'll probably love. She's a beautiful writer. Yes. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. Um, <laughs> sure. I thanks. appreciate both of you and your time. So. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It's so exciting.